Hey, uh, it is always a treat to be able to talk with Rafael Mangual. Uh, if you want to know what the former Attorney General Bill Barr, what the former New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton, what Megyn Kelly, uh, what Dennis Prager, and what my wife Rachel have in common, it's that they all absolutely love Rafael Mangual. He is uh, with the Manhattan Institute. He's a senior fellow and the head of research for the Manhattan Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative. He's a contributing editor to City Journal. And he's, he's the author of the new book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Also, uh, a pretty young guy to be this accomplished and uh, to be this celebrated by so many intellects. Raphael, thanks for staying up late with us. It's great to talk to you again. Oh, so great to be back on the show. Thanks so much for having me back. All right, so let's begin with the the premise of your book here. Uh, What has decarceration and depolicing led to, and who does it hurt the most? So I, I think what it's led to is a situation in which the downside risks associated with those endeavors have come to pass, which is to say that it has led to a systematic lowering of the transaction costs of committing crime as well as the systematic raising of the transaction costs of enforcing the law. And those two things in combination have created the circumstances, I think, for a good part of the crime spike that we have been living through for the last two-plus years. Now, we tend to talk about crime in sort of national terms, in citywide terms, in statewide terms. It's an understandable colloquialism um, to hear about America's crime problem or New York City's crime problem. But the reality is, is that Crime is a very hyper-concentrated phenomenon, and so the way that we understand who that problem hurts most, uh, I think, begins and ends with an understanding of that reality of crime concentration. So if you take just New York City, for example, and you dig into the data, what you find is that less than 4% of our street segments, the street segments being defined as corner-to-corner both sidewalks, account for 50% of all violent crime in the city. 95%, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims every single year in this city are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male. So these are problems, uh, violent crime is a problem really that affects very discrete parts of any given jurisdiction and affects a very small subset of a given jurisdiction's population. And what I wanted to do with this book was kind of highlight that a lot of the really bad ideas that have informed this push for decarceration, this push for uh, policing, which, by the way, have been promulgated in the name of racial equity, in the name of low-income minority communities, individuals who've been uh, disadvantaged in various ways, are actually creating problems that are disproportionately hurting those very people that reformers say they're trying to help. Mm. Now, historically, even though that we've seen a little bit of an uptick in the last couple of years in a city like New York, which is you spend a lot of time analyzing uh, the data in New York, among other cities, but New York, because of the large police force and the large population, it really is so uh, it's so emblematic of the situation in a lot of other urban areas around the country and because New York has implemented some of the policies that you decry in the in the book. Historically, even though crime is going up in a city like New York, in the grand scheme of things, if we look at New York over the last 40 years or so, isn't crime still relatively low in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, you know, 
the question is, is to what degree should that um, make us okay with the direction that we're heading, right? And I, I don't think that the answer is uh, a very high degree at all. I mean, for one thing, for a, a good portion of our population, that life is as dangerous in New York as it's ever been in their lifetimes, right? If, if you were, you know, born after 1996, um, this is going to be, you know, the most dangerous things have been in your entire memory. And so that matters. Um, you know, but it's also true that New York has, has changed in a lot of ways. We wouldn't expect it to be as bad as it was in the 1990s. You know, our city, thankfully, was able to fortify itself in really important ways that made a lot more communities within the city less vulnerable to the kinds of crime increases that characterized daily life in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s in New York. And so our capacity for a crime problem is different than it was in the 1990s, which means that the fact that we're still significantly lower in terms of homicides or you know, whatever crime mm. measure you want to use doesn't necessarily uh, spell success on our part. Uh, which is to say that, you know, I think the thing that should really guide us is an answer to the question of how bad are things, not in relation to, uh, you know, how bad they've been historically, but as bad as they can possibly get mm. given the situation on the ground. Now, uh, one of the things that I like about your work, not only in this book, but a lot of your other work, is it's very data driven. It's very difficult to argue with because it's primarily all based on numbers. So straighten us out in terms of the facts. I know New York made a big deal and the politicians in New York made a big deal in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident that they had cut essentially a billion dollars from the NYPD budget. Now, there are some politicians in New York these days. uh, I heard one speech recently by uh, city council member, Republican David Michael Carr, who said that they, the Common Sense Caucus working with Mayor Adams, has restored that billion dollars that was cut. Is that accurate? Has the, has the movement that led to the defunding of a billion dollars, uh, has that led to a, has that led to a re- replenishment of the billion dollar cut? Yeah, as far as I understand uh, the situation with New York City's budget, it's that, yeah, that there has been a backfilling process. Now, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the defund initiative um, didn't do harm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for one thing, there was an entire academy class uh, that was canceled. And, you know, those are officers that didn't join the force, you know, for at least another um, six months to a year, if not longer, depending on you know, sort of what assumptions you make about what the size of the academy class would have been. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, but, but, but that, that to me is also, I think, a distraction from mm. some of New York City's deeper problems. Because, and I wrote this in the New York Post a few months ago, um, but the idea that we can sort of dig our way out of this hole simply by refunding police is misguided in the following sense. That lever to, to pull a billion dollars out of the NYPD's budget was not the only lever pulled um, in the last few years in recent history that has an impact on our public safety. We have seen a number of reform initiatives from bail reform to discovery reform to less is more, raise the age and, you know, the right to know act and, you know, the, the, the stop and frisk litigation and, you know, the corporate monitorship of the NYPD, et cetera. I mean, there's this litany of things that 
affect what we can expect from the efforts of police. And so, you know, when you read these stories about, you know, really heinous crimes committed by somebody who's got 15, 20, 35, 50 prior arrests, what that tells you is that the NYPD is doing a pretty good job of identifying the sort of people who pose Mm. the biggest problems, but that the rest of the system isn't playing its role in keeping those individuals off the street. And so, you know, we have really reduced the capacity of the criminal justice system to back the efforts that are typically understood to fall within the realm of policing in a way that makes those efforts less impactful. In your book, you talk about how the very groups that activists claim to be helping uh, low-income minorities, and you just mentioned this again just now, with these police reforms are really the ones who end up getting hurt the most because they live in high-crime areas. Do regular people in high-crime areas want these police reforms? Do they want to uh, end stop, question, and frisk, for instance? Do they want to cut police funding, cut the size of the police force? If not... Why do they vote for people that support that? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I think you, you, depending on which sort of policy initiative you're talking about, you get a, a pretty wide range of responses on a survey like that. Um, but generally speaking, there is basically no support, even in low-income minority communities, for the more extreme kinds of uh, measures that are very popular among police and criminal justice reformers. I think Gallup did a poll uh, a little over a year ago now uh, that found that 81 percent of black Americans wanted as much, if not more, policing than they were currently getting. There was a, a Vox in Morning Consult poll done uh, in 2016 uh, assessing the public response to various questions about uh, incarceration and found very, very little support across racial groups for decarceration efforts that would put people back on the street who had been convicted of violent crimes or who had a high risk of reoffending if released. Um, And so, you know, there is not as much support in terms of why they continue to vote uh, for people and parties that, you know, we know have uh, sort of more sympathy for the kind of more radical reforms that we've seen. You know, I'm not sure I have the right answer to that. I suspect that it has something to do with other policy areas that really drive their decision to Mm. vote. Um, But also, you know, uh, I I suspect that there's probably, you know, a low turnout problem. Manhattan Institute just released a really fantastic paper by a colleague of mine, John Ketchum, that illustrates the degree to which voting is, you know, pretty suppressed, even in New York City, um, which claims to have uh, you know, uh, a sort of vibrant democracy. But, you know, we have off-year elections, um, you know, multiple times a year. So there, there are a lot of reasons why hardworking people who, you know, have just enough on their plates in terms of getting to and from work and taking mm-hmm. care of their families maybe don't participate in particularly high rates. And, you know, some of the more important elections that are often very low salience elections, right? I mean, most regular people don't know very much about, you know, the platform of the prosecutor running for office. And I think part of that is just the lag effect of the fact that we used to take for granted up until very recently that someone running for the office of prosecutor was serious about, you know, addressing crime. Um, You know, that's still kind of a new development that I think a lot of people need to catch up with. And um, as well as just the broader reform movement, it's really accelerated in a very Mm. short period of time. I mean, 
even just in, in the wake of, of what, what happened to George Floyd in 2020. New York Times did an analysis in 2021 that found that in the year after George Floyd's murder, more than 30 states had passed something like 140 different criminal justice reform bills. Um, so, you know, the, I, I do think it's, it's just going to take some time for, for, you know, people to sort of make those connections yeah. between policy and, and the impact on the ground. Yeah, I, I've maintained that a, a big problem uh, is uh, with policing reform and criminal justice reform is political reform, because if people if we're if we're seeing a situation where the only election that matters is the Democratic primary and there's not everybody participates in that contest, then you see you do see the most extremist element get elected and implement extremist policy. I think if we had nonpartisan elections, you'd see a a different situation. But well, that's a, a separate discussion. You mentioned that crime is is concentrated. How concentrated is crime? What are we what are we talking about here? And and can we simply just increase police presence in the areas where violent crime is? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's something that, you know, police departments across the country have already been doing. I mean, one of the you know, biggest advents of the, the 1990s was the incorporation of big data into um, policing, and specifically with respect to you know, decisions about the deployment of police resources, and you know, so so I do think that's largely being done. But just to kind of give listeners an idea of the scope of crime concentration in America, I mean, I, I, I gave the stat, you know, uh, for New York City, you know, about three and a half percent of street segmentsy, about fifty percent of all violent crime. You know, that that sort of pattern holds in cities across the world, not just uh, the country, but you know, in, in the United States. Uh, in a given year, about 2% of U.S. counties are going to see about 50% of U.S. murders. And about 60% of U.S. counties are not going to see any murders Oof. in a given year. And so, you know, the safest places in the – most of the United States is, is basically as safe as the safest places in the world. Um, if you were to sort of be randomly dropped over the United States by parachute, um, you know, 10,000 times, you know, 9,900 times you're going to, you know, land uh, in a place with a murder rate of zero. But, um, you know, an unlucky few will land in places that rival some of the most dangerous, uh, you know, urban enclaves in the world. I mean, you know, one example that I give in the book is West Garfield Park, Chicago, which in 2019 had a murder rate in excess of 130 per 100,000. Wow. And just to sort of put that in perspective, in 2019, the national murder rate was five per 100,000. And 28 other Chicago uh, neighborhoods, um, you know, which I aggregated in this analysis, uh, had a, a collective murder rate of less than two per 100,000. And so, you know, just to give you an idea of how your safety picture can change, even within the same city, you can go from a, you know, a neighborhood in the city of Chicago where the murder rate's one per 100,000 and then, you know, drive a few minutes and be in a place where the murder rate is 100 plus times that. Um, so it's a very hyper-concentrated problem geographically, but it's also a very hyper-concentrated problem demographically. And, you know, when we talk about homicide victimization in 2020, the black male homicide rate was 10 times the white rate. Um, you know, that, 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 that's a really important statistic to just sort of understand and absorb before you start talking about other problems, because it has implications for so many of our other criminal justice debates. I mean, one of the things that's really informed a lot of the, the, the sort of reform push for decarceration and depolicing initiatives 
is the you know reality that there are racial disparities in criminal justice enforcement statistics. But if you understand how concentrated crime mm. is, both geographically and demographically, and understand that police will logically and morally make the decision to disproportionately deploy their resources to the areas with the biggest crime problems, then that explains a good chunk of the disparities that follow with respect to enforcement efforts that are going to happen in those places, right? If you have police spending the bulk of their time in the places with the biggest crime problems, and you have certain demographic groups that are overrepresented in those places, then it logically follows um, that if police make those decisions, they're going to have disproportionate interactions with people of those backgrounds. And so we we can't just take a top line disparity and, you know, uh, accept that as prima facie evidence sure. of, you know, racial bias. Uh, and that's that's a huge part of it. Yeah, uh, talking with uh, the author of the book, Criminal Injustice, Rafael Mengual, the conventional wisdom on the subject of crime has always sort of been that crime is caused by poverty. You challenge that a little bit. Is crime caused by poverty? And if it's not caused by poverty, what is it caused by? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that there is an association between crime and poverty. But, you know, in terms of an immediate cause, it does not seem to be uh, anywhere near the top of the list. Um, Certainly not when we're talking about prioritizing responses to crime, right? The idea that we can spend our way out of a violent crime problem uh, is, I think, at complete odds with, you know, what the data is saying. You know, a few uh, data points to consider here is, uh, again, just focusing on New York City, in 1989, our uh, city's poverty rate was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016. Now, why am I picking those two years? I'm picking those two years because 1989 was the year before New York City peaked in terms of its number of murders, mm. 2,262 in 1990. And in 2016 was the year before we hit our valley number of murders, which is 292 in 2017. So we were able to cut homicides by a few, you know, 90%. Uh, and poverty actually moved slightly wow. in the wrong direction, if not, you know, essentially remained unchanged. You can look at, you know, other measures of socioeconomic uh, indicators like, um, you know, unemployment, right? So you get the Great Recession happened. Unemployment rate in the country nearly doubled between 2006 and 2010. The homicide rate declined 15 percent. Hmm. You can go back to the Great Depression. Crime declined in the United States uh, during the Great Depression. Homicides Spiked in the in the 1920s, which was a period of economic boom. I mean, you know, so so the idea that uh, that poverty causes crime it, to the extent that poverty reduction programs, social spending programs, should be seen as effective crime fighting tools is, I think, a misguided idea. I, I, when I was promoting the book and as soon as it launched, I did the. Uh, the Trevor Noah show. The I, actually, show I saw that Noah. interview. I thought that was a, a great interview on both of your parts. I thought he was very well prepared. And uh, for a comedy show especially, I thought it was the most substantive discussion uh, and the most civil disagreement on the subject of policing and criminality in America that I've seen in recent memory. Yeah, yeah. No, it was really a fantastic experience. And, you know, he was uh, very, very uh, excited about the book and, and, you know, clearly had read it. And so I really enjoyed that exchange. At one point, though, during the exchange, we were talking about this very topic about the connection between poverty and crime and social spending and crime. I, I, you know, sort of pointed out that 
education spending in the city of Chicago had, you know, increased significantly during a period in which homicides also increased. And he had an interesting response, which was that, well, yeah, you're only talking about a two-year period, though. And, you know, he gave this analogy of building out a soccer mm. team. Uh, you know, he says, you know, if you want to build a championship team, you have to sort of start with your farm system. And that takes you know years to cultivate. And you have to draft and sign people and, you know, train them. And, you know, uh, eventually you get to a point where, where you're able to win a championship. And, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to, to say it on the show because we, we ran out of time. But, you know, I understand the instinct to make that kind of argument. But the, I think the appropriate response is, you know, what are people supposed to do in the meantime? Right. Uh, right. You know, when they're dealing with, you know, gunshots outside of their homes. I mean, the idea that we should uh, just wait, you know, five years, 10 years, however long it takes, in the hopes that we will solve one of society's most intractable problems that we have yet to figure out how to solve at scale, right? I mean, you know, poverty and dispossession has been, you know, a, a sort of part of human history, um, you know, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of societies. Um, the idea that we know how to solve it, uh, I, I think, is it doesn't have any real basis, and, and, and the idea that we can solve it reliably mm. um, in, in some short period of time is, is I think, you know, uh, equally questionable. And so, you know, what I, what I think we need to pay more attention to are the things that we know can make crime less of a problem today things that we know can start to turn the tide much more quickly. Um, unfortunately, though, the longer that we wait, the longer that we allow misguided policies to stay in place and crime problems to fester, the more time it's going to take to get things back under and, and the fundamental aspect of that, based on your research, is more policing, particularly in neighborhoods where crime is concentrated, and keeping people in, in prison who are committing violent crimes. That's exactly right. I mean, the incapacitation of these people um, is is a really, really key point. Again, you know, policing is very, very important. It's the tip of the spear. But when these officers risk their lives to take really violent individuals off the street, there needs to be a system in place that can spare society of the crimes that they would otherwise commit if they were out in the general public. Mm. And that's where the major failure is in recent times, particularly here in New York City. You know, when, uh, when you have in the city of Chicago, for example, a situation in which the average person charged with a shooting or a homicide has 12 prior arrests, mm. when 20 percent of them have more than 20 prior arrests, when, you know, even historically before this reform movement really took hold, you know, more than a third of violent felons um, were either out on probation, parole or pretrial release at the time of their crime. You know, these are these are statistics that illustrate what the downside risk is that's associated with the kind of decarceration that people say they want to see. Right. I mean, the the best way to evaluate the claim that the United States has a mass incarceration problem is to ask the following question. Can we safely decarcerate on mass? Right. If we are unfavorably compared to a Western European democracy, be it, you know, the United Kingdom or, you know, Germany, uh, uh, with respect to our incarceration rate, we have to just ask the question, can we safely get our incarceration rate to achieve parity with that nation? That would require us to release about 75% of the people incarcerated in the United States. Um, Can we safely do that? Well, let's look at what our recidivism data says. The people who are getting out of prison right now under current policy have a recidivism rate of about 80 percent. 
right? So, the, so we're already dealing with a prison population of offenders that are extremely likely to reoffend if released. On average, over a 10-year period, those offenders are going to be arrested five times. Yeah, now, there are those that will say, though, uh, Raphael, that part of the problem there is the, the prison system itself, where instead of learning any marketable skills, uh, people come out of prison marginalized, very, you know, almost unemployable, and learn nothing in prison except how to be a better criminal. So, I mean, some people would use the recidivism statistic as a selling point to make prison more of a, a rehabilitation process than, an, than, a, than a punishment process, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think it's important to distinguish between the kind of punitive rationalization for incarceration and the incapacitation one. I mean, I'm not, you know, I've never been kind of a retributivist. I, you know, for me, the, the payoff of incarcerating a violent offender isn't, you know, the satisfaction of punishing that person for bad conduct. It's more so the fact that while they're inside the community that they would otherwise be spending their time in is spared the offenses that, it, that that individual would otherwise commit. And so those are, you know, that to me is the primary benefit associated with incarceration, not punishment. I do think that we should continue to invest in rehabilitation efforts. And I say in the book that there are many ways that we can consider making prisons less criminogenic. Uh, I don't think, however, that we have figured out how to rehabilitate reliably, let alone at scale, mm. across a prison population of 1.9 million people. And I think our recidivism data, uh, you know, reflect that. The idea that, you know, it, it, it reflects the fact that people are coming out of prison unemployable assumes that they went into prison employable. And, and you know, that that I don't think is the case either, in part because the average person leaving prison today had 10 prior arrests and five prior convictions before they entered prison. Um, so, you know, uh, we're already dealing with individuals who have kind of, uh, you know, set their trajectory, um, you know, long before their most recent incarceration. There, there was one study of, of, of bail reform uh, um, that the cities were anonymized, so, so we don't actually know what the jurisdictions were. Um, but the, the study was looking at the effect of pretrial release. It found a big increase in, in crime committed by people who were released pretrial. But one of the things it looked at was the incomes of individuals who were entering jail um, and, enter, and entering the system. And it, it found that that people who were um, arrested and, and entering pretrial detention, I think, had somewhere in the range of $5,000 uh, to $7,000 in annual earnings in the year prior to their incarceration. So, you know, when we're talking about incarcerated populations, we're not really talking about people who were uh, who, who were displaying some enormous amount of potential to, you know, sort of live mm. successful pro-social lives. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, you know, to what degree do we want to risk and gamble with the lives and safety of the individuals living in the communities that, that these offenders uh, are spending their time in, in order uh, to, to give them yet another chance at, you know, sort of playing by the rules and, and achieving. Yeah, Raphael, I, I, I have to run, uh, but I have literally pages worth of notes that I'd like to ask you about. Maybe we could uh, have a continuation of this conversation next week because uh, you've done some great work here, and it's uh, really raised a lot of interesting questions in my own mind and I, I suspect in the listeners' mind. Maybe we could do this again in a week or two. That'd be awesome. All right, if you want to comment... 
on any portion of our conversation. Uh, we're talking with Rafael Mengual. His book is Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. If you want to comment, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. 